0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chatterbox, the long-form business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Our guest today is Heidi Williams, an enormously impressive young economist at MIT. Her work covers the intersection of technology, especially medical technology, uh, intellectual property, and economic incentives. Last year, Heidi won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work on the economics of gene sequencing, patent policies, and pharmaceutical investments, and also how the private and public sectors should interact when it comes to funding new technologies. Her work has even been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court. And to be honest, if I had to pick one economist who is known to be a rising star within the profession, but is maybe still underheralded by the public, it would be Heidi work is so interesting and important, but it is also a bit technical. So for this episode, we really encourage you to check out the show notes where I've provided a brief guide to each of the papers that we discuss. And now here is my interview with Heidi Williams. Enjoy. So first of all, uh, thanks for agreeing to do this. Thanks for talking to us.
1: Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to come.
0: So my, my first question is this. Uh, What you've chosen to study within economics is like this really intriguing intersection of healthcare, medicine, uh, intellectual property, and technology, or maybe innovation is the right word. Can you just tell us how you first got interested in this and why you chose that uh, of all the other fields that were available to you?
1: You know, I think my interest originally in healthcare, at least, got started from just doing some reading on thinking about what are the major sources over time of improvements in uh, individuals' welfare. And it turns out that reductions in mortality and reductions in morbidity are tabulated to be sort of a major source of those gains. And so that's sort of why I was drawn to thinking about health as a topic of study. Um, Economists, it turns out, are also sort of equally convinced, although not based on excellent data, that technological change is the major driver of those improvements in health outcomes. And so what they traditionally have meant by that is if you take if you take a data set on health outcomes and you try to say, you know, is this explained by other factors like the population is just getting younger and it turns out younger people have better health outcomes than older people, does aging explain why aggregate population health is improving? And it looks like that those kinds of factors don't do a lot to explain the patterns. Whereas if you look at some case studies like people that had a heart attack in 1960 versus people that had a heart attack today or infants that are born at low birth weight in the 1970 versus infants that are born at low birth weights today day, their outcomes are much better. And a lot of the ways in which those deaths have changed is consistent with changes in medical treatments potentially have a very important role in explaining those changes in health outcomes. And so that's very suggestive that technological change is sort of an important thing to be studying. But then if you try to look at what do economists know or what does anybody know about what drives technological change, are we getting the right kinds of technologies developed? Um, and what I mean by the right technologies is, you know, we think that there are some kind of private incentives for firms to come in and develop new ideas and to bring them to market, to sell them to patients. And we also think that there's some social incentives that we would want to provide as a society for which technologies would be the most valuable technologies. And so, a lot of what I try to do in my work is to think about gaps between the private incentives and the social value that we would sort of want to be providing, so that we have an alignment between what's in private firms' interests in terms of developing new technologies and what's in society's interest or patients' interest in terms of getting the technologies developed that are most valuable to them. And so, the patent system is sort of one part of the suite of innovation policies that we use to try to better align private incentives and social incentives. And it's very controversial, and a lot of people think that maybe it doesn't do a great job of aligning those incentives. But it turns out a lot of the controversy is just based on people's theories or people's um, assertions, for lack of a better word, rather than on data and evidence. And so a lot of my work in this space has been focused on patents or focused on innovation policies as a way of essentially trying to bring rigorous evidence to shed light on The role that these policies play in trying to give society the medical technologies that are most beneficial to patients.
0: Yeah, and that's such a fascinating topic, the overlap between the private and the public sectors, right, and the ways in which those incentives align in some cases and maybe don't. In other cases. And I I feel like this is a story that people are familiar with when it comes to information technology and the internet. They have an idea that a lot of these technologies originated in investments that were made by, like, the Defense Department in the middle of the last century. I don't think people know as much about the background of how these things overlap when it comes to the healthcare industry. Uh can you actually talk about that a little bit maybe give us some of the the ways in which or tell us some of the ways in which the public sector has played a role in terms of innovations and some of the advances I guess uh in healthcare?
1: Yes, so I would love to have a better answer for you on that. So what I can t- what I can tell you about is some of the research, which isn't mine, that has tried to shed light on that, and then what's been hard about that and why I think this is actually sort of a first-order research question that's very open for people to try to work on. That so, sounds great. So one example is a paper by uh, Frank Lichtenberg and Bhavan Sampat, who are both researchers at Columbia University. So what they did is they took a set of drugs that were developed, and they asked, were those drugs utilizing patents? that acknowledged public sector funding as part of the basis for the patent. And so basically what you want to have in mind is that um, almost all drugs that are developed are patented. Um, Drugs that... uh, Drugs that acknowledge public sector funding is just sort of the way that they were using to say what, for example, make statements like what share of drugs um, cited public sector research funding as support for the basis of drug development. And they can do that separately for what you would think of as more valuable drugs or less valuable drugs as um, parametrized by some variables that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uses to say this is a high priority drug that has a particularly high social benefit. And so... uh, when they did those tabulations, you know, off the top of my head, I think they got numbers like 60% of drugs um, cited publicly funded research as an input into their development. And so that makes it sound like things like the National Institutes of Health funding for basic research in the sciences are very important because um, they're serving as the basis for a lot of drugs that are eventually brought to meet patients. So I think what's hard about that kind of study is that Because the NIH funded something, that was a project that the private sector didn't need to fund. And so economists tend to use phrases like crowd out to describe that possibility. So if a given technology is publicly funded, it doesn't need to be privately funded. But the question is, if it hadn't been publicly funded, would it have been privately funded? Or would it have been privately funded just a few years later? And so, in order to think about what's the return to public funding, you need to have a counterfactual in mind of what would the private sector have funded if the public sector hadn't come in with that funding. That, it turns out, is just a really difficult counterfactual to try to construct empirically, because you basically need something that um, shifts the amount of public research in an area, but is not determined by the same things that correlate with um, private funding. And so, you could think of as in recent years, there's been increasing public sector interest in Alzheimer's research, for example. But it turns out there's also been increasing private sector interest in Alzheimer's because everybody knows that Alzheimer's is a really important disease that doesn't have a lot of very effective treatments right now. And so just saying, well, there's more publicly funded research into Alzheimer's, are we getting more treatments into Alzheimer's, is not a very convincing study. And so it's just been really difficult for people to come up with a ways of valuing the contribution of publicly funded research into drug development. But that's just a first-order question because everyone thinks it's very important. Even private sector firms in this area say NIH funding is critical to what we do. And you know it's in the, they say it's in their interest to have the NIH budget continue to do more funding in this area. But it's just been hard to do like a return on investment calculation for justifying increases in the NIH budget. And so especially in recent years when there's been budgetary pressure to say maybe the NIH needs to show, better show the value of the research investments that it's doing, a lot of people have been trying to make progress in this area. But it's just been empirically very challenging.
0: Sure. I, I guess uh, coming up with uh, clever ways of designing studies is something that you've had to work a lot on. I gather that from your papers. We're going to get to a couple of them uh, in a minute. Uh, but I, I want before we get there, I want to ask you, uh, did you know before you chose this research focus that it would be so uh, data and time intensive. That's something that I read about in the uh, in the press release after you won the MacArthur Award last year. That that this is that the kind of work you do is kind of uniquely intense um, relative to other things you could have chosen within
1: economics. It's funny, you know, I don't know that all economists would agree that it's uniquely intense. (laughs) Um, I've been slow at producing papers, which either means that I'm slow or that it takes a lot longer to write papers in this area, but is... uh I, you know, I can't say for sure which one of those it is. I, I guess what I would say is anytime you're constructing new data, you sort of have a sense that this is going to take longer than if you can just take a survey that someone else has done and do some tabulations of like, what's the difference in unemployment rate across states or something? And that's going to be a shorter time horizon. And so, I mean, yes, to the extent that I knew that I was sort of embarking on trying to construct some new data sets or just linking data sets that hadn't been linked before. I sort of knew this. this was going to be a longer haul. And that's one thing that I've just really appreciated about um, my current job at MIT is my colleagues were just very supportive of saying, like, if you want to be working on these questions, you should feel like you have the time and space to be able to to do that. And, uh, you know, I think uh, in a lot of ways, society, you know, not just private firms, but society and grant deadlines and other things sort of puts pressure on people to write papers that can come out in a short period of time. And I was just very thankful that my colleagues sort of didn't put that kind of pressure on me.
0: Okay, great. Uh well, let's talk about uh some of these papers. Let's start with uh the economics of gene sequencing, which uh might be the topic you're best known for. Uh you've written a couple of papers on this. I want to walk through this carefully so that our listeners uh, understand because it does get into some technical, a very technical terminology here. To start with, what's a good way of understanding, a good simple way of understanding what gene sequencing is and of course what the importance of genotype-phenotype links are.
1: So there was a big effort to sequence the human genome that was simultaneously done by the public sector and by the private sector. It was initially launched by the public sector with the goal of basically providing a new set of data that would enable everybody in society to have a resource they needed to be able to make progress on discovering links between genes and diseases. And so, you know, back in, whatever, the 1960s, we sort of discovered that DNA was the way that the genetic code that humans have. If you look sort of in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of research going on about links between genes and diseases, but it was primarily sort of relating family histories, where we would see Huntington's disease, for example, get transmitted across generations within a family. And from that, we would infer that Huntington's disease must have a genetic basis. Um, What you were able to do once you sequence the genome is to basically use a much more data-driven approach to try to discover links between genes and diseases. So what it means to sequence a gene or sequence the genome is that you trace out the full sequence of nucleotide bases that make up the DNA that's in the human genome. And so nucleotide bases are these little ACTG characters. And it turns out you just need to l- literally read off the sequence of what order those are and how they appear in a, in a string of DNA or in a string of, of uh, genetic material. And so... The early sequencing machines would just take sort of a string of DNA, put it into a machine. It would break it up into small pieces. Each one of those pieces would sort of get read, and then out would come this data, which is the sequence of nucleotide bases in that part of the DNA sequence. And so once you have that data, then you can do a lot more data-intensive cross-comparisons to say, here's sort of one person's genome, here's another person's genome, Where are they similar and where are they different? And you can do that on a large scale to say, do people with a certain disease sort of consistently have certain patterns in how their genome looks relative to other people's genomes? So I'm not, like I said, I'm not a scientist, so I'm sure there's like many, many other ways that people will give you a sense of like how that data has been useful, but that's just sort of one example. And so the goal is to discover links between genetic variation and diseases. I'm using diseases kind of loosely because, in actuality, there's things beyond just diseases that are affected right. by our genes. So, your our, eye color, for example, our that physical
0: is, traits, or physical
1: right. traits. And so people use phenotypes to be more inclusive of not just diseases, but other physical traits. And so eye color or height would be some examples. And so when people talk about links between genes and phenotypes, they're just trying to think about links between genes and those physical manifestations of variation in the pattern of sequences within a gene. Um, But to a first approximation, you could just think about it as genes and diseases. Got it. Okay, great. So... The Human Genome Project
0: is publicly funded. It launches in 1990. And later on, uh, a private company called Celera—am I pronouncing yes, that correctly? I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. —is founded in the late 90s, and it begins sequencing a limited part of the human genome, right? So Not all of it. They actually had the
1: same goal, which is just to sequence did the, have the entire same genome goal. also. Okay.
0: Yep. Okay. Okay. In your paper, uh, you talk about how by 2001— uh Celera had sequenced a part of the human genome that the publicly funded human genome project had not yet sequenced, right? and that would not yet sequence until 2003. And what happened in those two years essentially forms the crux of what's in your paper. Why don't you just uh, take us through what we knew or what we know now and uh, what happened?
1: So essentially, this episode was broadly characterized as a race between the public sector and the private sector. So both the public sector and the private sector wanted to sequence all of the genes in the human genome. Um, And uh, it was controversial whether once this private firm entered, whether the public sector should keep going. And so, you know, there was a lot of contentious time around this. Essentially, at some point, there was a date when it was declared that both sides were done. And so Science and Nature on the same day published versions of the Sequent Genome, one from the Human Genome Project, which was publicly funded, and one from this firm, Solera. So these
0: are these are two journals, Two science journals, and Nature. Yes. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so
1: the two leading general interest science journals published versions of these genomes. And there was a big press conference where... Bill Clinton, I believe, and Tony Blair sort of gave a statement saying, great, the genome is sequenced. This is a great achievement for humanity. And so it turns out neither side was done. It was just sort of my understanding from reading some of the books on this is it was a convenient date for a press conference for Tony Blair and Bill Clinton to be there on the same day. Um, But what they said is, you know, the public sector said, we're going to keep going and we're going to sequence all of the genes on the human genome and we're going to finish by 2003. And so a lot of times when the public sector declares, like, you know, we're going to have this deadline that we meet, you may think that, that there's going to be some slippage, but actually they had set a bunch of deadlines. And so I think everybody knew that they were going to be done by 2003 because they'd made all of the deadlines that they'd set in the past. Solera basically said, we have a rough version of the genome done. We're going to focus our efforts primarily on trying to realize some value from the data that we generated rather than trying to finish up this small increment of DNA that we didn't quite finish sequencing. And so what that meant is that there were some genes genes that were only sequenced by the public sector, some genes that were only sequenced by Solera, and some, a bunch, most genes that were in the middle that were sequenced by both. The genes that were held, that were sequenced only by Solera, were then subsequently resequenced between 2001 and 2003 by the public sector. And so essentially what you have is a period of two years where these genes were held with an intellectual property form that Solera had on them. And then eventually they were moved into the public sector.
0: I just want to note something in terms of the publicly funded human genome project, whenever it would, whenever it would complete something that it had just finished right, it would put it out there in the open. It would be open source. Yes, I right. should have said uh, that. With Absolutely. Solera, it's different. Uh, this was a closely held company and this was essentially proprietary information for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, So what the public sector was working under was something called the Bermuda Rules, which was basically saying, as soon as you sequence these genes, within 24 hours, they need to be put in the public domain to encourage public research and access to this data. And so all of the publicly sequenced genes were immediately put in the public domain. So what Solera did is they wanted to try to realize some return on their sequencing investment. And so originally what they did is they actually filed a lot of gene patent applications, but most of those ended up being rejected because they actually didn't know anything about what these genes did. They just literally had the sequence. And in order to get a patent, you need to fulfill what's called the utility requirement, which means that you say something about how your invention is useful. And they might read is that they just didn't have sort of a very substantial application on that because all they had was the data. And so they hired a really smart lawyer and basically said, you know, we don't think we're going to get patents or our patents are getting rejected. Can you figure out a way of us capturing some returns on our investment in the absence of getting a Mm -hmm. patent? And so And this this yep. was
0: the this was when you referenced a second ago a different kind of intellectual property protection. This is what you're talking
1: about. Yes, exactly. Okay. And so it's a little hard because it's not called a patent. It's not called something that's sort of easy to refer to, but it's basically like the firm's best approximation to trying to get a patent when patents were not available. And so it turns out that how you would exactly describe that is basically some combination of a shrink wrap license and a contract. So when you get a copy of Microsoft Word, you like take off the shrink wrap and it says, you know, you're not supposed to copy and redistribute your software. And so they used something similar where they would send you a data DVD. And as part of the agreement, when you got it, you weren't supposed to copy and redistribute it. And so what that did is it allowed them to price discriminate across different people that they gave the data to. And so for academics, they could get the data for free. For pharmaceutical firms, they would charge them money. And academics couldn't just give their copy of the data to the pharmaceutical companies because of these restrictions on copying and redistribution. The second important set of restrictions that they have is anybody who comes in and tries to develop technologies based on the data needs to agree to a licensing contract with Solera. And so what that means is that if you use their data, even if you're an academic that got the data for free, you need to come in and basically come in and negotiate with Solera if you want to develop a drug, for example, that's going to be profitable based on some of the genetic data that you used from Solera. And so it was a combination of this. They got some money from charging different prices to different people, and they got some money from licensing agreements with people that use the data for subsequent uh, innovations.
0: Okay, got it. So this is a great context, and we can now look at the findings of the paper. The conclusion of the paper was that this kind of intellectual property protection slowed the subsequent innovation that was done on those genes that were sequenced first by Celera and only later uh, by the publicly funded Human Genome Project. And then there's a bunch of reasons that you give for that. Uh, So why don't you start by telling us how we know um, that the subsequent innovation was slower than it otherwise would have been and give us some of the reasons why.
1: So there's different ways of looking at the data. There's one that's the easiest to describe but is uh, sort of in itself not that convincing. And then there's progressively more complicated uh, tests that sort of give <laughs> the same answer. So let me just start with the easiest one. And then and then uh, I'm happy to talk about the other ones. So you can imagine just looking at genes that were sequenced by Celera and sequenced by the Human Genome Project in the same year. And if it were effectively random, which side sequenced each gene then you could just compare and say, for these genes that were born in the same year, some of them were in the public domain, some of them were held with this form of intellectual property, how did they fare in terms of the amount of subsequent research that happened on them? And so the ways that I measure subsequent research are um, scientific publications, so how much were scientists studying those genes, and then looking at different measures of how much was learned about those genes. So did we actually learn about a genotype phenotype link, or did we learn that that gene was linked to a disease? And then finally, I look at a commercial outcome, which is whether that gene is used in a diagnostic test that patients actually have access to. And so that um, set of outcomes in that comparison all suggests that Celera's genes were less of a focus of scientific research and were less likely to be used in these commercial diagnostic tests um, relative to other genes that were born in the same year, but were always in the public domain. And so... The potential problem with that test is maybe it's not random which genes were sequenced by Solera and which genes were sequenced by the public sector. And there's a variety of tests that is most of the paper, you know, which is trying to address that concern. And it turns out that you can do more and more nuanced comparisons, and they basically give a very similar answer, that it looks like the Solera genes had about 30% less follow-on innovation and follow-on commercial development relative to genes that were similar and always in the public domain. And so there's sort of many reasons why that could be the case. And in the paper, basically what I do is some informed speculation based on talking with scientists and talking with um, some historians that have written books about this episode um, to try to say what do we think might be going on. And it's funny because that's sort of one of the... One of the limitations of a lot of work in economics is just, you know, maybe you're able to say this behavior or this policy is linked to these outcomes, but understanding exactly what the mechanism is, is just hard. And so um, in my case, there's not a lot of data that you can get to try to look at the linkages or the mechanisms. And so I sort of needed by default to talk, basically just do interviews with people or do sort of a historical qualitative case study. And it's interesting to talk to people because I would say that there's pretty different answers that you get when you ask people about what happened. So some people just sort of said, you know, it was very controversial using Solera's data, and some people maybe just didn't want to use it. And so they were just waiting until these genes were in the public sector database, and then they used it later. So that sort of makes sense. Like people were, it definitely was controversial that this firm existed, but like my data is suggesting that there there were opportunities for making scientific advances or for making money off these diagnostic tests that people weren't taking because they were just sort of didn't want to use this data set that the firm had provided. So that's, to economists, that sort of seems surprising that you would have, you know, what they would say this money on the table. So like opportunities that you're not doing just because of like social stigma or something. So it could be that that's the case, um, but that seems maybe like an incomplete explanation. Um, One of the more um, economically well-founded potential explanations is that the way in which Solera set its contracts for licensing, so the way in which it charged money to firms that wanted to use their data in subsequent inventions, is not the way that an economic theorist would have optimally designed those contracts. And so it's not just that Solera did that wrong. It turns out a lot of biotech and pharmaceutical companies sort of use contracts that are not setting prices in the way that economic theory tells us is the most efficient. Maybe that there are um, contracting costs that are basically getting in the way of all of all of the profitable projects being developed that people have ideas for. And so the counterfactual there is basically to say if Solera had all of its ideas for developing subsequent innovations based on its data, then everything that's going to benefit consumers would have been developed. But in practice, if some ideas are not generated at Solera, but rather by a different firm, and if there's some kinds of transaction costs that get in the way of Solera writing a contract efficiently with the other firm, then it may be that other firms have some good ideas that just don't really get developed because of problems in writing contracts across firms. And so in the paper, I sort of talk about both types of those explanations as being potential reasons why these outcomes are the way they are. But um, it, you know, somewhat frustratingly to me, I, I don't have a lot to say on sort of which of those is most important important.
0: Uh, Although anecdotally, you also reported that some academics didn't do as much with the data as they could have because of some uncertainty around exactly what the rules were. Right. So it wasn't just in the commercial sphere.
1: And, you know, one reason that could matter is if you think that basically there's sort of two ways of thinking about the relationship between basic research and commercial development. So one is, I measure both of those as outcomes, but they're very independent. And the second is academic research or basic research is really important in generating leads, which are then picked up by commercial product developers. And so in that sense, the fact that we saw academics doing less research could be the driving force of why we see fewer diagnostic tests. And so it may not be that, you know, both academic research and commercial investment declined, but rather because academic research declined, we saw less commercial development. And so anything that sort of affected how much academics were using the data, in theory, could be explaining both sets of results. And so when academics sort of said you know, I didn't totally understand the the contract rules and whether it was okay for me to make copies for my graduate students in my lab, for example, you know, because these these restrictions on redistribution were meant, I think, for them not to make copies of the data and sell it to Pfizer, but they sort of had some, at least a few of them in interviews sort of suggested they had some confusion about whether that those restrictions on copying applied at a more local level. And so that kind of uncertainty in contracting may have interfered with academics, you know, use of the data. Um. And so that's sort of a a different way of of framing why there might have been less academic research.
0: Yeah. One of the reasons I like reading about and discussing these details from the paper is that it sort of makes concrete this more, uh, I guess, abstract idea that technology is often cumulative. And so if you have these frictions in terms of sharing the available data, the information, the technology, then it slows everything down. And I, I guess that, that to me seems like the most important, like the single biggest takeaway from the work. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, essentially, there's a lot of policy interests and also academic interests in just A given technology may not be important just because it's sold to consumers and consumers benefit from having a new iPhone or a new TV. You know, technologies may be most important because they lay the groundwork for other technologies. And so that's an idea that's very intuitive, but it turns out it's just been very difficult for people to come in and try to measure. Because when you look at, you know, something like what are the the benefits that have been generated from the iPhone coming into development – The iPhone may have given people a lot of ideas for things that there's never credit given, like, oh, I thought to do this because the iPhone was doing a good job of doing this. And including some of its product market competitors, like the Android phone may be better because the iPhone came up with certain ways of doing things. But we don't have a way of tracing out what are the linkages of how ideas spilled over across innovation on different technologies in a way that can allow us to sort of give credit or to say, you know, if the iPhone was patented or wasn't patented, would we have gotten more of this follow-on innovation? Or more ideas spilling over to other innovators, and so just from a measurement perspective, it's something that has been really hard for people to get traction on. Even though everyone thinks anecdotally it's very important, and so I think one thing that this paper is is sort of doing that was useful is just saying at least in this context we can sort of say these genes are sort of an extreme case where genes aren't sold to anybody. Nobody makes money off of having a sequenced gene. They're and you know, in some sense, only input as as an input into subsequent innovation. And because of the way that genes are structured, we can actually have a very precise linkage of saying this gene was studied in these scientific papers and this gene was used in these diagnostic tests in a way that allows us to capture a lot, although for sure, not all of those spillovers, because the sequenced human genome might also have been useful in agriculture, for example, and I'm not measuring any of those benefits. But I can at least measure some of them and sort of talk about what the impact of intellectual property on on human innovation is based on those outcomes. Sure.
0: Although, intriguingly, uh, you had a paper published at the end of last year that very much complements the one we've just discussed, finding that patents, as opposed to the specific kind of intellectual property protection that we just discussed, patents seem to have no particular effect in terms of stopping follow-on innovation or in spurring follow-on innovation. That had to be surprising.
1: So it's interesting. So I so originally started on a paper about solar and the human genome, hoping to write a paper on gene patents. And then it turns out that the gene patents weren't really relevant in that context. And so uh, a lot of people Asked me, you know, do you think your results generalize to gene patents? And I had never really been comfortable making a strong statement about that. And so, uh, you know, I would say that it took me five or six years to figure out how to write a paper on gene patents because it turns out that uh, we just don't have a lot of good policy variation where similar technologies come online and are developed. Some are patented and some aren't, and that that happens in any kind of random way. And so, um, basically, it took. A lot of data collection and a lot of work with my co-author to figure out a way of generating a natural experiment where some genes come into the patent office and are assigned to patent examiners that are more lenient so they just tend to grant more of the applications that come across their desk and other patent examiners seem to be more strict where given a similar application they would make a decision that that patent application shouldn't be granted a patent and so we started by using that kind of variation of which patent examiner is assigned to review your application as a, something of a randomized shifter of whether your gene patent application was granted a patent and so that lever basically let us look at how do gene patents affect follow innovation and as you alluded to, there's a lot of theories about why patents should either encourage or discourage innovation. We find evidence that's relatively precise, saying they just don't look like they've had any measurable effect on following innovation in the outcomes that we've been able to measure, and in the context where we can sort of construct the data to do that study. And so, was I surprised? Um, to be honest, uh, you know, it's hard. You you come in you come in to do a study and. I think it's important to be open-minded about what you're going to find. And so, you know, based on my previous study, you might have thought, oh, she thinks that all intellectual property is bad for innovation. Um, I, I would say that that wasn't really my prior. Um, there was a lot of qualitative research that I had read while working on the other project that sort of suggested that if you interview academics about patents, they say that they're not really paying attention to patents. And so that gives you an inkling of what, why you might find something different than what I found in the earlier study. So in my earlier study, I'm finding that academics did less research on genes that were held with this form of intellectual property that Solera had. But then if you interview faculty at universities about whether they pay attention to what's patented and what isn't, they sort of say, not really. You know, I don't really search for whether things that I use in my lab are patented. That's suggestive that it's not affecting their behavior. And, you know, I want to, as an economist, I don't want to do just interviews. I want to look at the data and see if the data is consistent with what they're seeing in the interviews. But I will say that that sort of gave me a strong hint that the answer that we might get for patents would actually be quite different from what we got for this other form of intellectual property.
0: Yeah. So uh, there was a conundrum uh, that I kept thinking of uh, as I thought about these two papers. Uh, I don't know if it's something that can or has been studied, but you've been looking at whether or not certain kinds of intellectual property hinder subsequent or follow-on innovation to technologies that already exist. And I guess my question was whether or not there's also a link between intellectual property protections and the development of those technologies in the first place, in case somebody who's thinking about developing a certain technology or coming up with something new might worry that the intellectual property protections won't exist by the time the technology's there, right? Is there any way of uh, reconciling that? How should we think about that?
1: I think what you're asking is my study is sort of only looking at one half of the equation in some sense, where I'm sort of saying conditional on these technologies existing, how do intellectual property rights affect subsequent outcomes? But what about the fact that having intellectual property in Solera's case provided some incentive for them to come in? Yeah, not even
0: in the specific case of of Solera, but just like in in general, general, yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. So, yes, absolutely. So both of those papers are focused on a relatively narrow question of – once a technology exists is it good or bad for a society if that's patented which is not answering the question of um, was it better to have you know patents or intellectual property relative to nothing because we can't see anything about what the investment in the initial inventions would have been right. if intellectual property or patents wouldn't have been available and so um, When you think about Solera, like would Solera have entered the market if they thought that they wouldn't have been able to get a patent or wouldn't have been able to get intellectual property? And I think informed historians and observers would probably actually give you pretty different answers to that question because, you know, for all I know, I don't think they had – it very well thought out in advance what their intellectual property strategy was going to be before they had all of their data. And so maybe they just thought, you know, we'll just figure this out when we get there, in which case, you know, maybe they would have come in and done the sequencing that they did even without that. Um, but I think... Probably the answer is, you know, if they would have thought for sure we're not going to be able to have any intellectual property protection, maybe they wouldn't have entered at all. That's an empirical question and it's one that I would love to know the answer to, but it's just kind of hard to answer. And so um, rather than trying to tackle that in the case of gene patents where I just haven't really been able to think of a good way of doing that, I've been working on some other papers that try to get at this question of what is the the incentive that – Um, patents or intellectual property provide to the developers of new inventions. And so in theory, I hope to someday write a paper that marries both of those. But so far, I've just been able to sort of piecemeal attack them in different projects.
0: Great. When are those other papers coming out?
1: (laughs) Well, one of them is already out. So one of them is it, it was intended to try to look at whether longer patent terms spur more investment in drug development um, for the case of cancer oh, drugs.
0: Oh, good. Good. That's that's what we're talking about Great. next. That's actually <laughs> the very next topic. I, I actually want to introduce, uh, or I want to talk about how you introduced this paper, because this was really fascinating to me. Um, you start by noting that in the last half decade, eight different drugs have been approved to tackle late-stage lung cancer, right? That's just lung cancer. But no drugs have ever been approved to prevent lung cancer, and only six drugs have ever been approved to prevent any cancers of any kind. And somebody might react to that by thinking, well, maybe the science itself is just harder, and you note that that could well be possible. uh, But you also offer a couple of other alternative explanations in the paper. Uh, Why don't you tell us uh, what they are?
1: So uh, when you talk to people that work in drug development about certain kinds of projects that they try to do, you often hear about two twin and very related concerns. So when you want to bring a new drug to market, you need to show the government, and in this case, you know, in the US, it's the Food and Drug Administration, that your drug is safe and effective. And the way that you do that is you bring evidence from a clinical trial that shows that your drug improves survival relative to some control group, which sometimes is a placebo and sometimes is another treatment. And so it turns out that It takes longer to show evidence that your drug improves survival if your patients live for a longer period of time. And so if you look at something like early stage breast cancer, patients have a relatively good outlook on how long they're going to live. Whereas if you look at late stage breast cancer, the mortality rates are much higher. And just the simple statistics of clinical trials means that you're going to be able to show a statistically significant difference between the treatment and control group for a late-stage breast cancer drug relative to an early-stage breast cancer drug. And so what that means is that the clinical trials that you need to do to bring an early-stage breast cancer drug to market are just much longer than the clinical trials you need to do to bring a late-stage breast cancer drug to market. So one reason that could matter is if just firms are sort of impatient in the sense that they want to get drugs developed more quickly, and especially small firms that don't have a lot of access to capital may face a lot of pressure to do things on a shorter time horizon. Um, It's controversial whether those kinds of short-term forces are empirically relevant, but it's definitely one potential explanation that people have been interested in. One Reason why it could also matter is um, the specific way in which the patent system interacts with that process, and so it turns out that firms face very strong incentives to file their patents before they start clinical trials. And so everybody gets the same patent term, which is 20 years, but if you have to file your patent before your clinical trials start and your trial takes 17 years, what that means is that your patent life is actually three years after you finish trial once you actually are able to start selling your drug to consumers. Whereas if your trial takes five years, you have 15 years of effective patent term. And so originally we sort of came into this project thinking, oh, this is a nice source of variation in the patent terms that we as a society provide to different diseases because as a function of how long it takes on average to do clinical trials in different areas, we as a society are providing different lengths of patent protection. It turns out that the study is not well placed to sort of nail down patents per se as the mechanism for the reason that I mentioned before, because firms may just have other reasons why they want to do these short-term studies. And so the study ended up being focused not on patents, but rather on whether firms are sort of focused on these shorter-term projects that can be completed more quickly, either because they're sort of more impatient than we would want as a society or because of these incentives in the patent system.
0: Okay. And I guess this is where we should talk about uh, some of the potential solutions to the problem because two of the solutions that you uh, recommend or that you offer would help no matter what the cause is. One uh, would address only one of the two specific causes. Uh, So why don't we go uh, through each of those three uh, in turn? The first uh, has this very uh, economisty named of surrogate Endpoints, but uh, essentially, it's an idea to try to shorten the length of those clinical trials. Why don't you sort of take us through what changing the surrogate or changing what the endpoint is by using a surrogate endpoint means?
1: Sure, and uh, to give credit where credit is due, it's a it's a doctor name, not an <laughs> oh, economist <yeah. laughs> name. So, but uh, uh, you know, but it could uh, have been <laughs> it could have been an economist name. I agree. So. So we want to start by saying that the idea of using surrogate endpoints is extremely controversial. So I'll define what they are and then tell you about why they've been controversial. So clinical trials, like I said, need to show evidence that a drug is safe and effective. Usually what effective means is that you improve survival relative to a control group. Um, It turns out that In some cases, we have an outcome that we observe more quickly than you observe survival, which is generally thought to be a marker for your survival will improve in the future. And so for some types of cancers, in particular cancers of the blood, um, these markers are things like measuring the amount of cancer in your blood or in your bone marrow. And it turns out that if the treatment is being effective, you'll both see decreases in the level of cancer in your blood or bone marrow, and that's a predictor that your survival will improve later. And so that's an example of um, what's generally perceived as a valid surrogate endpoint, so a surrogate endpoint where if you see a causal decrease in this outcome, you will see also a causal decrease in survival or increase in survival, sorry. So the reason why surrogate endpoints are controversial is it's hard to establish good causal evidence for that link. So sometimes you'll take a drug and it'll have biological activity that it induces in your body that may be perceived as you getting better, but that may not actually be correlated with subsequent improvements in survival. And so um, the reason why surrogate endpoints aren't more widely used and why they're very controversial in certain areas of the medical community is because it's hard to find valid surrogate endpoints. And so one thing that we do in the paper is we look empirically at a case where valid surrogate endpoints were available, or I should say, surrogate endpoints that are generally accepted as valid by the medical community and by the Food and Drug Administration were available. And they were used very consistently so that firms were able to get drugs approved on a shorter time horizon relative to what they would have needed if they would have had to show impacts on survival. And it turns out you see mu- many more drugs get developed, and you also see improvements in patient health outcomes, which suggests that the incremental research that was done because these surrogate endpoints were available actually had benefits to patients, which isn't obvious because there's a lot of people who think that you know drugs that are developed, what economists would say, on the margin. So, you know, the, the drugs that are induced to be developed on when you get a relatively small change in incentives may just not be that socially valuable. But our data is at least very consistent with these, these drugs that were developed because of the surrogate endpoints having a lot of health benefits to patients. And so that's sort of empirically saying that if we can find valid surrogates, it looks like they may benefit patients, the question is then where do valid surrogates come from and how could we sort of leverage that as a potential way of, of improving patient health? And so we do just a qualitative case study of where surrogate endpoints came from for heart disease. And it turns out most of the surrogate endpoints for heart disease, which are things like cholesterol reduction or blood pressure reduction, came out of the Framingham Heart Study, which is this decades-long federally funded study, which first just documented correlations between things like cholesterol and blood pressure and Cardiovascular disease mortality. And so those hypotheses were then the subject of research, which tried to establish a causal link where if a drug reduced your cholesterol or reduced your blood pressure, would that also reduce your cardiovascular disease mortality? And now most of the drugs that are approved, like beta blockers or statins, were approved on the basis of circuit endpoints rather than on actual cardiovascular mortality as an outcome in the clinical trial. And so I think that example is instructive because it sort of gives some color to the fact that these investments in discovering surrogate endpoints are something that one firm isn't going to have an incentive to do. Because once you know that blood pressure reductions are a surrogate endpoint for cardiovascular mortality reductions, that... Knowledge is available to all firms, and so it's sort of it's a classic case of what economists would call a public good. And the case for public sector funding to come in and try to do research, investigating and validating potential surrogate endpoints is, I think, just very promising as a potential way of leveraging public sector funding to bring in more private sector dollars into drug development.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, I guess uh, just to uh, clarify again for our listeners. Where those valid surrogate endpoints can be found, it solves the problem of either it being an issue of patent design or corporate short-termism. So it's sort of it's a it's a, a useful thing no matter what the cause is. Uh, the next uh, solution only addresses the issue of patent design, which is to redesign patents.
1: Yes. So not surprisingly, if you change the patent system, that's really only going to affect (laughs) things if patents matter. And so one sort of thing that comes to mind for a lot of people when I first talk to them about this study is, what if we just changed patents so that they start at the time you start selling your drug rather than at the time that you start your clinical trial. And I think that seems very natural in the case of drug development, partly because people think that patents function pretty well in pharmaceutical markets. It's not that there's no problems with patents in pharmaceutical markets, but relative to something like software, where we think that there's a lot of patent trolls and things are very controversial. In pharmaceuticals, people generally think that things work well. And so I think one problem with that just practically is that That may work okay in pharmaceuticals, but it probably would not be a good idea in a lot of other sectors to say, you know. you can just have a hold on this idea. And then whenever you want to bring your idea to market, your patent protection can start. And so I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable with the idea of introducing that as a patent reform. One way that you could replicate that effectively in pharmaceuticals is that the Food and Drug Administration has something they they give out, which are called FDA exclusivity periods, which are basically extensions on your monopoly rights as if your patent was getting extended. But you wouldn't have to reform the patent system. You could effectively give Firms a longer patent protection through these exclusivity periods in a way that didn't require any reform to the patent system, but would give more, like a bigger increase in incentives to firms that had longer clinical trials in the past. And so, if you wanted to do that, which our paper doesn't provide a strong basis for as currently written, um, I think that would be the policy way in which you would actually do the implementation rather than reforming the patent system per se.
0: Got it. Okay, and then the the final one is, uh, I guess, a more obvious solution, which is just more R&D subsidies. You mentioned public goods a second ago. Public goods uh, for our listeners uh, are essentially just a way to describe things that the public sector can do that either complement what the private sector is offering or can fill in the gap left by the private markets, things they don't do. R&D subsidies would be a way of doing that, right?
1: Yes. And so, for example, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. are very cognizant that there's very little private investment in Alzheimer's research or much less than they would want. And so they've been doing a big push to say maybe we need to be coming in and filling this gaps because there's too little private investment as much as they perceive. And so in our context, it's very clear which... Um, diseases are subject to this concern because we know which diseases require long clinical trials. And so we could say maybe we should target more public sector re- research dollars through the NIH at early-stage cancers or cancer prevention because we know that the private sector will have relatively more incentives to do these drug development projects for late-stage cancers. And so in a, as a relative way, our paper gives some guidance on how the NIH may want to target its funding.
0: Okay, great. Those were the uh, the two topics that I absolutely wanted to get to talk to you about. But there are three whole other papers that I was hoping we could at least touch on. So we're going to kind of turn this into a bit of a speed round. Don't worry. It's going to be fun. We do this a lot. (laughs) Um, So the the first has to do with the top-up design uh, for health insurance. Why don't you tell us what that means, first of all, uh, and tell us whether or not uh, you think it's a good idea?
1: There's a famous idea in economics, which is uh, mostly attributed to economist named Sam Peltzman, who was at University of Chicago, of how we want to provide public funding for goods that people may want to provide. So the contrast he did was between public and private schools. So when you provide public schooling, you basically provide like a fixed thing, and you can consume public schooling or not. And then if you want to consume private schooling, you pay the entire cost. And what Peltzman proposed was sort of an intermediate design, which he called a top-up design, which is that maybe what, what the government should do is just give you a voucher for the cost of public school, and if you want, you can take that voucher to the private school and just pay the incremental difference between the public school amount and the private school amount. And so that idea of vouchers is something that comes up in a lot of different sectors. And what we were interested in looking at in, in some joint work with Amy Finkelstein, and my colleague at MIT, and Lauren Einhoff at Stanford, was thinking about applying that idea to health insurance. And so essentially what we have in the U.S. is that we have very generous health insurance where most things that are available, uh, health insurance to a first approximation will cover. Whereas in the U.K., as a contrast, they have a much more restrictive, sense of what's covered. So in, especially for like pharmaceuticals, they only reimburse things that are cost-effective, deemed cost-effective. And anything that's not cost-effective, you have to pay the full cost out of pocket.
0: Right. So, and so to use your yeah. earlier analogy, essentially in the U.S., right, to use the public and private school analogy, if you have health insurance, you can get the private school equivalent of health care. In the U.K., right, Everybody has health insurance, but you can yes, only go to public school. That's the analogy. The public, You can only get the public school equivalent, if well, that
1: makes or, sense. Well, or okay. if, if you go to private school, you have to pay the entire amount out of pocket.
0: Or you pay all of private school yourself. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Yeah.
1: And so what we were interested in is trying to say, would there be a welfare gain relative to either the U.S. system or the U.K. system if we had a top-up insurance feature? And so uh, – The reason why I'm not comfortable saying, like, do I recommend this or not, is we did a case study that would actually never happen in practice. So it was more of an illustrative, how would you do the welfare economics of this for health insurance? And so uh, it's not like I'm ready to make policy recommendations. But what we did is a case study for breast cancer saying, if we charge prices that were sort of along the lines of this intermediate top-up policy, would that improve welfare? And we found, yes, the sort of top-up policy does better than either the U.S. or the U.K. policy under some assumptions. Under other assumptions, the U.S. policy may be superior. Um but it's just one case study and it's really more illustrative than it is meant to be sort of a policy conclusion. But it was it was a fun it was a fun project to work on because it's sort of in theory we we think that this is sort of a better policy, but in practice it's been hard to get empirical traction on trying to think about measuring the welfare gains from that.
0: Yeah. At the very beginning of our conversation, we talked about the difficulty in uh, trying to design studies that would look at counterfactuals and things like that. This kind of seems like one of them, Uh, but the details are also pretty interesting. And again, we don't have a ton of time, but essentially you looked at the difference in cost between a mastectomy and a lumpectomy with radiation. So a lumpectomy with radiation is more expensive than a mastectomy, but in terms of subsequent health outcomes, they're not too different. So you can use the variation in those two things to study whether or not a top-up health insurance system could bring overall welfare benefits so that the people who are willing to pay for the more expensive lumpectomy, they can and they'd have a little bit of a subsidy, but the people who didn't want to pay anything extra would get the mastectomy and they'd be okay with that.
1: Yes. And that's a great summary. And I'll just say that when I talk to physicians about the study, they say, well, no one would ever introduce top-up payments for breast cancer patients. So that's that's why we sort of say that it's more of an illustrative example. But the reason that we chose that example is because in the in the US which is where we have data from it's hard to get price variation because almost everything is covered by insurance once you have cancer you know you're not really paying on the margin through your deductible or anything mm-hmm. and so for cancer patients because these lumpectomy patients tend to get radiation there's actually a a non-monetary cost that they pay, which is that um, some people have a longer driving distance to get radiation treatment than other people. And it turns out that patients seem to respond to driving distance in the way in the way that we would expect them to, to respond to a difference in price, which is that if the radiation facility is further away, they act as if it costs more to get lumpectomy with radiation. And so we were able to use that distance variation to shift as if you're getting a shift in price, even within the context of the U.S. where we actually didn't have price variation. And so yeah. that was sort of why we chose was that case study.
0: That was also very clever though. Uh, Quantifying or monetizing the time was sort of the the clever thing that you could exploit there. Um, Cool. Okay. Next paper real quick. Uh, Why U.S. infant mortality uh, is so high, um, especially relative to other developed countries that spend the same amount um, in terms of outcomes for uh, for infants? Um, You find that the problem is post-neonatal outcomes, so outcomes after the first month of birth?
1: Yes. So essentially what we try to do is we got some new micro data, so data on individual infants that are born in the U.S. and in two different European countries. And we tried to say, let's do a decomposition of why infant mortality is different in those two countries. And so there are some just mechanical reasons that you want to account for or try to rule out, which is that on the on the for infants that are born really on the margin of survival there's some question of are those just coded differently where infants that die shortly after birth are they coded as deaths in some areas and births in the other areas and so having this microdata allows you to sort of look at different um, ways of accounting for potentially differences in reporting that could be different across countries. And we find sort of consistent with some earlier work that had been done by the Centers for Disease Control and others that that has the potential to matter a lot, but you can sort of focus on a part of the distribution where that's just not relevant because these are infants that are healthy enough that they're not dying shortly after birth. Um, But it does look like that could potentially matter a fair amount for the kind of aggregate statistics that are sometimes put out in the news media. And then... What we do is we look at mortality outcomes for the first month of life and then after the first month of life. And it looks like the U.S. is doing as well as its European counterparts during the first month of life, which to a first approximation largely overlaps with any time that the patients are in the hospital right after birth, so both the mothers and the infants. Whereas after 30 days um, is a period that's called post-neonatal mortality, um, but that's also just more commonly associated with the time when the infants are at home. And so our data is really just saying the difference emerges in the post-neonatal period, and that's sort of the fact that we have in the paper. Um, you know, in terms of just thinking, does the U.S. have worse birth outcomes because medical care is worse in the, ish, in the time right after babies are delivered? The data doesn't look very consistent with that because it looks like we're doing as well during the time period when those infants are in the hospital, and we're doing less well after these infants are at home. And I think that points to the... A potential value of doing more research on social programs that are targeted towards things that could potentially reduce infant mortality during that later time period, rather than sort of having. I think a lot of people have a tendency to focus on medical care as the most important input into mortality and health outcomes, and our facts are more consistent with looking at sort of behavioral explanations as sort of a more important thing to focus attention on.
0: I should note that there's also uh, a kind of inequality-themed part to this paper, which is that those poor. Birth outcomes are concentrated on lower socioeconomic uh, status individuals. That's a direct quote from the paper. Anything else we should know about that?
1: Yeah, so one way of saying it is um, if you're highly educated or otherwise high socioeconomic status in the US, you do as well as highly educated. Um, mothers and infants do in, in Europe. Um, where By infants, I obviously mean infants of highly educated mothers. Um, and the difference emerges because low education or low socioeconomic women in the U.S. do much worse than their counterparts in Europe. And so echoing a lot of the themes that we've seen recently about the U.S. having higher inequality on a variety of dimensions, um, our facts and data are very consistent with the reason why the U.S. has a much higher infant mortality rate is not because everyone's doing worse, which, to some extent, rules out some explanations like you know, uh, hospitals are worse for everyone, or pollution is bad for everyone. It looks like whatever factors are important seem to be disproportionately affecting and causing bad outcomes for lower education and low lower socioeconomic households in the U.S.
0: Okay, final paper: geographic variation in healthcare in the U.S. Uh, another very cleverly designed study. Uh, the idea here is that um, patients in some parts of the country use more healthcare in dollar terms than patients in other parts of the country. And then you study how much that has to do with the health and the preferences of the patients themselves versus how much has to do with place-specific factors like the incentives of the doctors or just the way healthcare is done in different parts of the country. Uh, If I recall correctly, uh, you found it was roughly half and half. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. The study sites and, and is very much building on uh, a often read, I guess I should say, New Yorker article by Atul Gawande, uh, which was talking about McAllen in El Paso, Texas. And so basically what he framed it as is these are two towns in Texas that have very similar populations, but one spends, you know, a lot more than the other on Medicare patients, and they get roughly similar outcomes. And so why why is it that the spending is so different across places? And the Dartmouth Atlas, which is a group of researchers in economics and medicine at Dartmouth, has sort of documented that that characterization holds across the US. So Miami spends much more than Minneapolis. And so there are just some high spending areas that don't seem to be getting better outcomes. So why are they spending so much more? And so that's sort of the puzzle, which a lot of effort has been expended among health economists trying to understand. And And so we did something very simple in a a paper that's joint with Amy Finkelstein and Matt Jensko at Stanford, um, which is we tried to look at when patients move across areas. And so the idea is when you move... um, what you take with you is your preferences for how much healthcare you want to consume and your health. And so, you know, I tend to not go to the doctor very often, whereas some other people my age tend to go to the doctor at the drop of a hat for like, I have a headache, I need to go see a specialist. And people are probably just different. But to the extent that those differences are constant when you move, um, what you can do is look at people that move from Miami to Minneapolis. So they move from a high spending area to a low spending area. And you say, after they move, do they look more like people in Minneapolis than they do people in Miami? And what is the size of the change when they move? Similarly, if you move from Minneapolis to Miami, does your health spending increase a lot when you move to Miami? To the extent that you do get a change when you move, that tells you that something about Miami is encouraging people to spend more money. And the extent it doesn't change when you move tells you that it's about people, which is, you know, I'm a high-spending person, and when I move across places, I spend a lot in both places. And so by comparing the changes in spending when people move across different pairs of locations, we're able to do a quantification of how much about the geographic and spending is explained by people and things that are specific about people or fixed uh, within people versus places. And like you said, the breakdown is about
0: 50-50. Okay, fantastic. This is a, a really fascinating set of uh, scholarly work. Thanks so much for being on Alpha Chatterbox.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me.
0: Our guest has been Heidi Williams at MIT. And that concludes my interview with Heidi Williams. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can find us on iTunes where you can rank us. Please do so. It really does help other people find the show. You can email us at alphachatterbox at ft.com or you can call us at 917-551-5012. That is a U.S. number, so the country code is plus one for those of you calling from overseas. Or you can find me on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Thanks, as always, to Amy Keene, the producer and editor of this podcast and all of our other podcasts here in the U.S. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again for another episode of Alpha Chatterbox, again on the Alpha Chat feed in just a few weeks.